Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Troubadour Podcast. This is an episode of Sunday Morning Poetry. Today, we're going to cover The Nightingale by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Now, this is one of the poems that comes early on in the um, 1798 edition of Lyrical Ballads by William Wordsworth and Coleridge. Now, Coleridge uh, contributed the first poem in this, and, and it was one of the major impetuses for the publication and how they were able to get it published in the first place, and, and what drove a lot of this, besides Will, William Wordsworth really wanted the money, and uh, or needed the money, I should say. And, um, and that's the, the, the rhyme of the ancient mariner. And that's the longest poem in here. And then right after that is another, po- and this is in lyrical ballads again, right after that is a, another poem by Coleridge called The Foster Mother's Tale. And then there's a, a poem by um, Wordsworth that we did last week, lines written on a, a yew tree, and then a conversational poem called The Nightingale, which is Coleridge. And then the vast majority of the poems in here are going to be by Wordsworth. And it's around this time, it's very quickly after this, that Wordsworth and Coleridge both realize that the true poet among them is Wordsworth. Now, the poem today, though, and I think Coleridge has a very profound impact on Wordsworth. And we get, um, we're often told for those looking into this, that Coleridge's greatest accomplishment was Wordsworth. And I think that's a, a an apt statement because he had a very deep philosophical and motivational in, um, influence on Wordsworth. It was his relate. It was Wordsworth's relationship with Coleridge that convinced him to continue being a poet that convinced him at 28 that he could do this, that this was his vocation. If, in other words, from Wordsworth's perspective, he had been writing ditties and, you know, questioning what he should do in life. And then he met Coleridge, who was an, an epic, an amazing poet that he really um, um, admired. And so Wordsworth said, if this person likes my work, then this is what I should be doing, that I'm good at this and this is worthwhile to pursue. And so he does. And, and slowly over the next couple of years, it becomes apparent to both of them that Wordsworth is the greater of the two poets, whereas Coleridge is more philosophical. And so he becomes the great critic, the great literary critic of the era. And in fact, if you look into books on romanticism, and especially English romanticism, you'll often see that this is the era defined by the views and philosophies of Coleridge, the, you know, the critic. The, the essayist and critic, as well as the poet. Now, so this that's just all to get ready for what I think is a very important um, poem in this, you know, all these poems are very important, of course, but this poem is incredibly illustrative of the philosophy that we, we're talking about when we think of romanticism, when we think about nature, um, you know, looking back romantically at the past. And then, of course, also the rebelliousness of it. So there's there's all of that going on in this poem. And, you know, to kind of kick us off, I'm at, so we're going to do a couple of things today that is unusual. One, we're going to listen to nightingales, so an actual song, or the actual song of the birds. We're going to listen a little bit to an Aeolian harp, which is refer, referenced here in this piece. And we're going to try to get, what is Coleridge talking about when he's, he's, going into this idea that we're going to hear about regarding the receiving of wisdom and, and knowledge and, and teachings from nature more than just mere books. Now, both of these people are both lovers of books and they're big readers, but they also advocate Wordsworth and Coleridge, the idea of going out into nature and learning from nature, right? Going out and learning about life, about the world, about everything. And there is, um, you know, a, a strong sense of that in Romanticism. Okay, so, so to prep you for this, there's a couple of things that I want to do to help you out because it is this is going to be a little bit more difficult, I think, than many of the Wordsworth poems. But the first thing is, I think you need to have a just a very quick little understanding of the Philomela uh, myth, 
this comes from ancient Greek, and it really comes from Ovid, that uh, comes to us today, but he was talking about the ancient Greek that, uh, texts that we no longer have. And in this tale, which is many variations of this, essentially Philomela's sister marries the, uh, a prince, and Philomela is the last daughter of a king in her land. The brother-in-law, her Philomela's brother-in-law, the, the sister's uh, husband, comes to pick her up because her sister is sad. So he goes to the father and says, I will take your daughter to your sister for a temporary time so that they can be happy because they're, they miss each other. They're lonely. And the father is um, a little bit weary of this because he is afraid of something happening to his daughter, his last remaining daughter. But he says that if the brother-in-law, this, this king of this, uh, this prince of the Southern land, if he will promise to look after Philomela as though she were his daughter, then he will uh, accede. And the prince says yes, to puts her on his boat. Of course, he has fallen madly in lust with her and wants to have sex with her very badly. And when they land on the shores of his land, he takes her to a cabin and rapes her. He tells her that if she goes around and says anything about this, he will do bad things to her. Well, she starts talking to birds and the animals around, or different variations have different versions of this. And so he cuts out her tongue. Now, the next thing is that she, um, in order to try to get a message to her sister, weaves a tapestry or, or a, um, a dress, or depending on, you know, whatever, just some kind of cloth for the sister. She gives it um, to a, you know, a, a maiden to go take to her sister as a gift. The sister sees it in the, the tapestry is the story. So she's, con she's communicating. This is the whole point of this is communicating this to the, um, to her sister, the, the wife of this guy who raped her. What happened? Then she goes, she gets Philomela. They kill, um, the, their her Philomela's nephew, the son of this girl, through this brother, this this rapist. So they kill him, the son. Um, they cook him and they feed him to the this brother-in-law. And then they show him the head, uh, this prince, whatever. And they show him the head, and then he realizes the cannibalism. He chases him around um, with an axe. He's going to kill them. The two sisters pray to be, you know, saved and. Um, Philomela, they're, they're turned into birds. Importantly, Philomela is turned into a nightingale. Now, through the, the centuries, a nightingale has always been associated in literature circles as this kind of melancholy, sad being, right? I mean, that's, that's what we hear in this tale. And, and so when you hear a bird singing or um, a nightingale singing, what you're hearing is the sad notes of Philomela's song. So let's take a quick gander and listen at um, a, a nightingale singing. We're not going to listen to, I think you might notice it'll say something like five minutes. We're not going to listen to the whole thing. Just a couple, 30 seconds or so to give you an idea. So the idea is that if you um, heard that tale and you went and you did, whenever you would hear a nightingale, that nightingale that we were just listening to was Philomela singing her melancholy song, her sad, pensive, reflective, tragic story. And I think you, you might be able to get some of that in there now. You might notice in the way that I'm talking about this that Coleridge takes a completely different view of this, and he says how ludicrous this is, and that's what's coming across in this poem. The Nightingale is he is talking. He starts off by talking about how these um, poets and literary people before him uh, had this view of it, and how it is ludicrous. And you know he doesn't use the word ludicrous, but he talks about it in that kind of 
um, term. He says, most musical, most melancholy bird. A melancholy bird? Oh, idle thought. In nature, there is nothing melancholy. So, and then he's going to argue that what it is that's happening, or one of the things he argues is that's what's happening is that we impose our view, our thoughts, our understanding, you know, our own perceptual awareness onto nature. Now, I think that this is basically correct. So, for instance, um, I've always noticed with dogs, I have a dog now, and I've noticed that with people, they tend to associate emotions to dogs. Like a dog looks up to you, looks up at you, and its ears go back, and then you think uh, that it's nervous or scared, or it could even be, depending on the look on the dog's face, which is not, dogs don't make faces. <laughs> they they just have faces, and then we associate, you know, like a, a basset hound has like a droopy, sad face. So we think that that dog is really sad. And then some golden retrievers look like they're smiling. That dog's not smiling. Dogs don't friggin' smile. Dogs aren't happy in that way. Now, dogs can be excited and they can, you know, experience a certain kind of um, flush of a kind of emotion, like when it's fed, right? Like it has a certain satiation to it. And it, when, it gets a, when it gets a walk, that's a dog being a dog. And so that dog, in a sense, is excited, but it's not happy in the way that we're happy when we, um, you know, uh, finish writing a story and people like it, or we, we, you know, fix something in the house and it's appreciated, right? We, we fix something when we, we, our car that we never thought we could do, we fix the carburetor or something, you know, and we get a sense of accomplishment and we're happy. And we're fl- like that is not something that a dog uh, uh, gets. And anything we see in that, even in, in, you know, a dog just kind of lays there and looks at you and I had a friend that was like, man, your dog is sad. I was like, no, my dog's just lying down. That's what dogs do. And so my point is that we, we, we kind of impinge, we infringe, we put onto nature our own emotional views and thoughts and contemplations. And that's what's happening with the nightingale. And Coleridge is responding to that. This idea that the nightingale is singing a melancholy song. He's going to say, no, 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 no. That's an idle thought or a stupid thought. No. And now, and then he's going to talk about what it does do and, and how he wants people, including his son, to be, you know, uh, how to associate with nature. Now, the last thing I'm going to say is just a quick setup for the entirety of the poem so you kind of get a, a sense because it's going to be hard to follow your first time. Um, I hope you listen to it a couple times and, you know, keep coming back. And then, of course, read it for yourself. But essentially, what happens is you have a, a narrator, uh, Coleridge who's hanging out with his two good friends, Dorothy and William Wordsworth. He doesn't name them, but we know that that's who he's talking about. But even if it's not, even if you don't know this bi- biographically, by the way, it's okay. Because you just know that he's hanging out with two people who are like him and that they're poets of some sort. And then he's, he, all of a sudden he hears this nightingale and that makes him reflect on this literary term things that we've been talking about. And then he starts to tell a story or like, you know, kind of example of this old castle with this woman in it. And, and, you know, even though the castle has been forgotten and it's being, you know, run over by nature, the woman is there and, and all the nightingales are singing a happy song. And then he kind of ends as the, the nightingale kind of flitters off the warbler. He calls it a warble is the song that it, the, that it makes. And another, he does, um, some, he call, he does jug jug is another sound that is um, you know that that is the the traditional sound of what a, a nightingale makes, and you know so he talks about how now the the warbler the the nightingale has left, and then he he thinks lastly the concluding thoughts is that you know I hope that my son, who I notice is when he cries and uh, or he cries until he sees the moon and then he calms down. And I hope that I can teach him, and that's kind of what this poem is supposed to be doing. I hope I can teach him, my son, to associate with night and nature joy, not melancholy and sadness. And so that's like the gist of the poem. It's it's kind of, there's a lot of ideas going on. There's a lot of, uh, there's, there's kind of philosophy going on, but it's all in more in concrete visual terms with meter, uh, but no rhyme. It's an iambic pentameter which is, you know, an attempt to um, 
base it off of the the way that we talk, the normal speech patterns, and in a but in a heightened kind of sense, not in the literal uh, translate, you know, literal copying of common speech, but in a, in a, a, um, a poetic version of that. I guess is the easiest way to say that. This is also called a conversation poem, conversational poem, and there's many senses that it's conversational. One, he's conversing with nature, he's conversing with you, he's conversing with the Wordsworths, and he's conversing with other literary figures before him. And I'm often, you know, um, asked, like, what is literature at the capital L versus just, you know, literature in a broad sense just means letters, right? So anything with letters in it is literature. So a cookbook is literature. But when we talk about like literature, like high literature, we are talking about something very specific. And often I think one dominant characteristic or one characteristic is that there is a sense of at least an awareness in the, in the story, in the literature that you're reading of the literature that came before it. That's why to some degree, you know, the, there's a, I think a serious question of, you know, in the postmodern world, do we have literature? Because most of the writers today are very unfamiliar. They may have some vague familiarities, but they're very unfamiliar with all the the, the millions of stories and the great you know ballads, um, the great poems, the great uh, pieces of literature going all the way back to into antiquity into modern times. Except maybe what they could read on a Wikipedia page, right? They don't actually read the actual way that the language was used to convey. So my point is that there's a sense where maybe we've cut off literature in our society. And I hope that the Troubadour brings that back. That's kind of one of the goals of Troubadour podcasts is to bring back that literary sense. So there is a kind of allusion, A-L-L-U-S-I-O-N, you know, which is alluding, which is referring to other works of art. And, you know, so most musical, most melancholy, that is uh, Milton. It's a passage in Milton, and in, in the author's, um, Coleridge's estimation is an excellent and superior, more superior than just a mere description. And he's trying to convey that there's something special in this kind of melancholy, or excuse me, in this kind of alliteration, most melancholy, or most musical, most melancholy. That conveys a lot of what he's trying to say. That it's it sounds good. It's you know musical and melancholy. This bird, and you know so this we're getting this kind of adjectival description of this bird, but that it's missing an important or but it's wrong in its estimation of of this bird. And it's one of his examples. Okay, so I'm gonna read this poem, and then we're gonna go through it a little bit, and we'll we'll try to listen to this Aeolian harp because he references that, and an Aeolian harp is a harp that. Uh, and you'll see this in, if you're watching the video. That is, um, it, it it looks like a, a normal harp that you might think of, but it, it utilizes the wind. So it's it's a harp that, in a sense, harnesses the sounds of nature, and so it has that relationship. So it's, it's you know makes sense that these romantics would really love that because they kind of deify nature in a certain sense. Okay, the nightingale, a conversational poem written in April 1798. No cloud, no relic of the sunken day, distinguishes the West. No long, thin slip of sullen light, no obscure, trembling hues. Come, we will rest on this old mossy bridge. You see the glimmer of the stream beneath, but hear no murmuring. It flows silently, or its soft bed of verdure. All is well. A balmy night, and though the stars be dim, yet let us think upon the vernal showers that gladden the green earth, and we shall find a pleasure in the dimness of the stars. And hark, the nightingale begins its song, most musical, most melancholy bird. A melancholy bird? Oh, idle thought! In nature there is nothing melancholy. But some night-wandering man, whose heart was pierced with the remembrance of a grievous wrong, or slow distemper, or neglected love, and so, poor wretch, filled all things with himself, 
and made all gentle sounds tell back the tale of his own sorrow. He, and such as he, first named these notes a melancholy strain. And many a poet echoes the conceit, poet who hath been building up the rhyme when he had better far have stretched his limbs beside a brook in mossy forest dell, by sun or moonlight, to the influxes of shapes and sounds, and shifting elements of surrendering his whole spirit, of his song and of his fame forgetful. So his fame should share in nature's immortality, a venerable thing, and so his song should make all nature lovelier, and itself be loved like nature. But twill not be so, and youths and maidens most poetical who lose the deepening twilights of the spring in ballrooms and hot theaters. They still, full of meek sympathy, must heave their sighs or Philomela's pity-pleading strains. My friend, and thou our sister, we have learned a different lore. We may not thus profane nature's sweetest voices, always full of love and joyance. Tis the merry nightingale that crowds and hurries, and precipitates with fast, thick warble his delicious notes, as he were fearful that an April night would be too short for him to utter forth his love chant, and disturbeth in his full soul of all its music. And I know a grove, of large extent, hard by a castle huge, which the great lord inhabits not. And so this grove is wild with tangling underwood, and the trim walks are broken up, and grass, thin grass and king cups grow within the paths. But never elsewhere in one place I knew so many nightingales and far and near, in wood and thicket, over the wide grove they answer and provoke each other's song, with skirmish and capricious passagings, and murmurings musical and swift jug-jug, and one low piping sound more sweet than all, stirring the air with such a harmony that should you close your eyes, you might almost forget it was not day. On moonlight bushes, whose dewy leaflets are but half disclosed, you may perchance behold them on the twigs, their bright, bright eyes, their eyes both bright and full, glistening, while many a glowworm in the shade lights up her love torch. A most gentle maid, who dwelleth in her hospitable home hard by the castle, and at latest eve, even like a lady vowed and dedicate, to something more than nature in the grove, glides through the pathways. She knows all their notes, that gentle maid, and oft a moment's space, what time the moon was lost behind a cloud, hath heard a pause of silence, till the moon emerging, a hath awakened earth and sky with one sensation, and those wakeful birds have all burst forth in choral minstrelsy, as if some sudden gale had swept at once a hundred airy harps, and she hath watched many a nightingale perch giddily on a blossomy twig, still swinging from the breeze, and to that motion tune his wanton song like tipsy joy that reels with tossing head. Farewell, O warbler, till tomorrow eve. And you, my friends, farewell, a short farewell. We have been loitering long and pleasantly, and now for our dear homes, that strain again. Full fain it would delay me, my dear babe, who, capable of no articulate sound, mars all things with his imitative lisp. How he would place his hand beside his ear, his little hand, the small forefinger up, and bid us listen, and deem, and I deem it wise, to make him nature's playmate. He knows well the evening star, and once, when he awoke in most distressful mood, 
Some inward pain had made up that strange thing, an infant's dream. I hurried with him to our orchard plot, and he beheld the moon, and, hushed at once, suspends his sobs, and laughs most silently, while his eyes, fair eyes, that swarm with undropped tears, did glitter in the yellow moonbeam. Well, it is a father's tale, but if that heaven should give me life, his childhood shall grow up familiar with these songs, that with the night he may associate joy. Once more farewell, sweet nightingale, once more, my friends, farewell. Okay, so I wanted to give you some examples of nightingales in pre-Coleridgean poetry. First, here's one by Petrarch. Petrarch wrote, I, I'm forgetting the time frame, I should have put this in here, I think it was like the 1300s, but he, he was an important prefigure in um, bringing and uh, enhancing poetry. So anyway, but he's a famous poet. He said that the nightingale who now melodious mourns, perhaps his children or his consort dear, the heavens with sweetness fills, the distant borns resound his notes, so piteous and so clear. With me all night he weeps. And so this is, um, you know, so th there's another little example here, Charlotte Smith, poor melancholy bird, that all night long tellst to the moon thy tale of tender woe, uh, Mary Robinson, Sweet Bird of Sorrow, she has is one of her songs. Christina Rossetti, um, he, there's a slight shift here, and we get, I shall not hear the nightingale sing on as if in pain. And so there's, there's a starting to, to recognize that um, I'm not going to listen to this song of Philomela as one way to look at it, that this horrible song. And then another uh, poet of the time, Hine, wrote, writes, if the nightingale knew how ill and worn with woe I be, they would cheerily carol and trill and all bring joy to me. So there's this, there's this starting to, they're recognizing this idea that, hey, you know, why is this, this um, bird singing so melancholy? And then what Wordsworth does is he takes it to the next level. He says, well, it's not. It's, it's you that's making it sound melancholy. It's actually full of joy and beauty and, and pleasure. And it's actually, a, you know, the, um, what we get at this time also is the representation of the song of the bird with the creation of the poet, the, the poet's creative force. And so you get toward the, at the end of this poem, you get the idea of the birds, the, the nightingales singing to each other and inspiring each other, which is something that Wordsworth and uh, Coleridge did all the time as they would, you know, write to each other voluminously. And that's how we know a lot about these guys is they wrote to each other a lot. And so we, um, you know, and, and in there, they kind of inspired each other. So let's go through this um, a little bit. I won't be able to go through everything. But I hope that you'll go through some of it on your own. There's a lot that's worthwhile in here in just the imagery that they use, that he, that Coleridge uses. I mean, so you get, for instance, a sense of the immediacy of the visuals, a pleasure in the dimness of the stars, and hark, right? And oh my gosh, the nightingale begins its song, right? So we have this immediacy of this visual that, that causes the, the whole reflection of the poem. So it begins, no cloud, no relic of the sunken day distinguishes the west, no long thin slip of sullen light, no obscure trembling hues come. So he's, he's kind of talking about the scene of where they are, like what's going on and with the scene. So, the, but he's doing it all in negatives, which is always interesting. There, there's no cloud, there's no relic, there's nothing that distinguishes this is the west, right? And by that, I think he means civilization. And then he's... He says almost to you or to the, you know, Wordsworth and, Col uh, and uh, Dorothy, but he says, in a, you know, come, we will rest on this old mossy bridge. So now this is one way to read poetry is always try to like those words come like, hey, come over here. Like you need to take that seriously. When he says come, you need to come, right? You need to go with him. That's what he's telling you to do. And there's a reason for that. So he's saying, come sit with me on this mossy 
bridge. Not a normal bridge. It's a bridge overrun by moths. Poetry teaches you to be very visual and concrete and present. Come, we will rest on this old mossy bridge. You see the glimmer of the stream beneath? What's a stream? A river, right? Water beneath them? But here, no murmuring. Now, murmuring is always a great little word, you know, because it, murmuring is something that people do, but we, we often say it of rivers and lakes or rivers and streams because it makes a little burbling, like a gurgling sound. And it sounds, you know, it, it can kind of make you think of people really far away um, talking that you can't understand what they're saying. And so there's, there's a sense where he's using that kind of language of, I mean, just imagine there's like 10 people, uh, you know, sitting around out in the forest, but they're so far away. You could just hear the sounds of what they're saying, but you can't make out any words. Well, that's what's going on in nature, is you can hear the sounds of nature, but you can't quite understand the words unless you know how to listen, right? And so he, he does kind of make that argument that you can, you can get that. It takes teaching and, and education. It flows silently, or it's a soft bed of verdure. All is still, a balmy night, a pleasantly warm night. And though the stars be dim, yet let us think upon the vernal showers that gladden the green earth, and we shall find a pleasure in the dimness of the stars. So, you know, there, he's painting the scene of a balmy night. There, there's a, a, you know, an, a silent little stream beneath them. So it's actually not murmuring, right? But the reason you do that is that you would do a negative like that, I think, is that you want to make the connotations clear. That, you know, the, the connotations of the speaking that I was telling you about, you know, people speaking and nature speaking, you still want to make that clear. So you say no murmuring. So it's actually not doing that. So it's like there are 10 people out there, but they're not talking right now. And now he's saying, let us think on this, this uh, vernal showers. And hark. So we're going to think about stuff. It's, you know, it's, it's here in Converse. It's a conversational poem. And while they're sitting on this bridge, hark, oh my gosh, the nightingale begins its song. Most musical, most melancholy bird. Now, you can't see this if you're listening only, but this is in quotations. And this comes from Milton. This is a line out of Milton. And so he's saying most musical, most melancholy bird. That's what he quote unquote thinks about. Because he read in a book by a dead guy that quote. And then he thinks to himself out loud, a melancholy bird? Mm. Oh, idle thought. In nature, there is nothing melancholy. Now, he's, um, so he's saying there is nothing melancholy in nature. Then he's going to go into why he thinks, he's going to describe why he thinks we think that it's melancholy. But some night-wandering man, some man who wanders at night, whose heart was pierced with the remembrance of a grievous wrong, who, let's say, had a broken heart from a girl. You know, she, she left him for some other man. So we have this guy walking out in, in the night, and he's sad because a girl, I'm just making up an example, maybe his father died, you know, whatever example. Or slow distemper or neglected love, and so poor wretch, filled all things with himself and made all gentle sounds tell back the tale, tell back the tale of his own sorrow. In other words, what he did is this poor wretch, this sad guy who's neglected love, or he had a, a slow distemper, which is um, a kind of mental disorder or a depression. Now, so he's a guy who's like that. And he filled all things with himself. So in other words, he projected sadness all around him. And if you've ever been like depressed or sad, then you see a lot of things in sad ways. Like you, you look around and everything looks sad. The people around you look sad. You know, um, the day is sad. Like everything just feels sad <laughs> and depressed. And the, the opposite is true. When you're happy, when you've achieved things, every, it seems like everyone's on your side all of a sudden. Right, so like we fill the world with what is inside of us and made all gentle sounds tell back the tale of his own story. So he hears this bird 
and he gets uh, instead of a happy song which is the objective reality of the bird according to Coleridge and he gets back a sad song right he and such as he first named these notes a melancholy strain so in other words some guy millennia and before all the poets millennia ago maybe this was the first poet he was sad he went out in nature at night he heard this song and then he said oh birds are melancholy but it was just him imposing his own view on it and many a poet echoes the conceit poets who hath been building up the rhyme that's like milton for instance where he had better far have stretched limbs beside a brook in mossy forest dell think, what do you think that means so pause for a second think about it so we have I'm not going to give you the answer right away, but I will give it to you. So we have a poet who has been building up rhymes about the melancholy bird where he had where, or excuse me, when he had better far have stretched his limbs beside a brook in mossy forest dell by sun or moonlight to the influxes of shapes and sounds and shifting elements, surrendering his whole spirit of his song and of his fame forgetful. But think about it poet who has been building up the rhyme of, of this melancholy bird you know when he had better far have stretched his limbs so think about what you what that means okay i think what it means is that it's better it would have been better for these poets to stop reading other poets so much and go out into nature and just kind of absorb nature and that's what Coleridge and the Romantics are all about, is they're about just absorbing nature as it is, not imposing all of our um, cultural and, and historical biases on it. And I think there's some truth to that. I think there's some value in doing that. Now, again, just to reiterate, Coleridge and Wordsworth were deep readers, and they loved reading. They're not against reading as such. What they're against is just you know taking on what the your predecessors um, said on face value. And he tells this poet, the, these conceited poets, surrender your whole spirit of, of his song and forget your fame. So his fame should share in nature's immortality, a venerable thing, a respectable thing to do this between nature and the poet. And so his song should make all nature lovelier and itself be loved like nature. But twill not be so and youths and maiden most poetical who lose the deepening twilights of the spring in ballrooms and hot theaters, they still full of meek sympathy must heave their sighs or Philomela's pity-pleading strains. But this will not happen. The youths and the women, the, mo the ones who are most receptive to poetry, they will lose the deepening twilights of the spring so they won't gain the value of nature because they're going to lose it where? In ballrooms and hot theaters, right? As opposed to the balmy, which is a pleasantly warm night, they're going to be in a hot theater surrounded by all these loud, noisy, boisterous people. They still will be full of meek sympathy and they're going to, because they've read all the books, they're going to have to heave their sighs over Philomela's pity-pleading strains. And so Philomela, again, is the myth. The myth that, you know, is where we get the story of Nightingale. Next ends. My friend and thou, you, our sister, we have learned a different lore, a different education. We, not, we may not thus profane nature's sweet voices, always full of love and joyance. So in other words, nature is actually full of of sweetness and pleasure and joy. Tis the merry nightingale that crowds and hurries and precipitates with fast, thick warble his delicious notes, as he were fearful that an April night would be too short for him to utter forth his love chant and disburden his full soul of all its music. So in other words, it this song of this nightingale is so beautiful and it's so full of energy and power and passion because this nightingale wants this to um, come across very quickly because it, 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 it's almost like it has this desire to get all of its passion out before the short night is over. Next stanza. Now I, and I know a grove, a 
of large extent, hard by a castle huge. So this we have this grove, a thing of nature, by this huge castle, which the great lord inhabits not, so it's abandoned. And so this grove is wild with tangling underwood, so it's being overgrown by nature, tangling underwood. And the trim walks are broken up, and grass, thin, thin grass and king cups grow within the path. So we have like the trimmings, you know, any kind of gardening is all gone. It's being overgrown by just the, na- the, the, the way that whatever nature wants to grow. And the pathways, you know, the walkways, the sidewalk in a sense, they're all broken up and there's like little flowers of king cups and grass that's peeking up through it. So he's drawing you a picture. But never elsewhere in one place I knew so many nightingales. So in this abandoned place where nature is overtaking human civilization, there's all these beautiful nightingales. And far and near in wood and thicket over the wide grove, they answer and provoke each other's song with skirmish and capricious passagings and murmurs musical and soft jug-jug and one low piping sound more sweet than all, stirring the air with such a harmony that should you close your eyes, you might almost forget it was not day. So what is that thought talking about? So there's this castle that's overgrown with nature. There's all these nightingales. And all over the place, these nightingales are feeding off each other musically. Oh, here's my song. Oh, here's my song. Oh, here's my song that's even better because I heard your song. Oh, here's my song that's even better because I heard your song. And so on and so forth. And that's a, you know, a, a metaphor, I think. Or not, I think. It's definitely a metaphor be, be, uh, about him and Coleridge. But, or him and Wordsworth. And also about all poems. So he's also saying that there is a natural song. There's a value. And I think, you know, underlying this is there is a value in the song passed on from poet to poet, right? Through the generations, through the eras. So again, he doesn't throw out literature. What he throws out is the idea of you have to take everything at face value. You can't think for yourself and you can't. And that nature doesn't have its own value to convey um, separate from what other poets may have said about it. And it's so beautiful in this place, by the way, that you might forget it wasn't day. You might for so you might associate, you know, the things that we associate with daytime, the, the pleasantry, the the seeing of the, you know, the buzzing bees and all the beauty of the of the world. Well, a lot of that is it tends to be lost at night because you can't see everything. But if you close your eyes in this area, it will make you feel that it's that. Continuing, on moonlight bushes, whose dewy leaflets are but half-closed, you may perchance behold them on the twigs, their bright, bright eyes, their eyes both bright and full, glistening, while many a glowworm in the shade lights up her love torch. Now, there's a, a poem that is, this, this poem is definitely in reference to William Cooper's The Nightingale and the Glowworm. And the idea is that the nightingale is going to go eat this glowworm. And then the glowworm, as it's in the mouth of the nightingale, makes an argument and says, Hey, you sing a beautiful song, a beautiful, sad song. (laughs) I light up the world. We have two different values, both created by our creator. And, you know, it's a good Christian to, to understand that I'm not like you, but I am like you in my own way. And I think this is like a, a view of religious tolerance, but and, and that's what this is harkening back to. But there's this idea that, you know, um, a moonlit bushes whose dewy leaflets are but half closed, you may perchance you like you may behold them, the nightingales, with their bright eyes glistening. And you know, so in other words, you if you go out into this castle area that Coleridge is talking about, you might see some tales, some education. Some some teaching, some lore that can make you think of something. And he, you know, this makes an allusion to um Cooper. And by doing that, because Cooper is, if you read his poem, he's teaching you about religious tolerance. And so he's, you know, Coleridge is saying, that's what nature does. Nature teaches you about religious tolerance and many, many other things. That's just one example. Continuing. A most gentle maid who dwelleth in her hospitable home hard by the castle, and at latest eve, even like a lady vowed and dedicated to something more than nature in the grove, glides through the pathways. So she's walking in these broken pathways. 
She knows all their notes, Nightingale's notes, that gentle maid. And oft, a moment's space, what time the moon was lost behind a cloud, has heard a pause of silence. Till the mood, so in other words, the, the, he's, drawing, he's continuing to draw the picture of this maid. She's out there. There's these nightingales. She knows the notes of the nightingales, so she's associated with nature in that way. But when the moon goes behind a cloud, the nightingales stop singing. But then the moon comes back. And then, so there's an association with the moon awakening nature. Hath awakened earth and sky with one sensation. And those wakeful birds have all burst forth in choral minstrelsy. Write a song. There's a medieval singer like a troubadour. It's going around singing a song. As if some sudden gale had swept at once a hundred airy harps. That's the Aeolian harp. And she hath watched many a nightingale perch giddily on blossomy twig, still swinging from the breeze, and to that motion tune his wanton song, like tipsy joy that reels with tossing head. Now there's a poem that Wordsworth writes later that I've already done several times on this podcast called I Wandered Lonely as a Cloud, or Daffodils. And he talks, and, and he gets this from his sister. So this is like the, the, the song of all these poets singing to each other. Is that in the poem by Wordsworth, he talks about the daffodils reel with tossing head, which he you know um, re- read in Dorothy's journal on, based on a day that they had. So she was influenced by this line, like tipsy joy that reels with tossing head. And she wrote it in her journal in just a description of these daffodils she saw. Wordsworth saw that journal, which he often did from Dorothy. He read it and he transformed it into one of the greatest poems in the history of the English language. And it is, you know, except acknowledged as one of the great poems of all time. So that's kind of the, these are all nightingales, these three individuals, and they're singing to each other. And they're, so there's also a central analogy going on here. Now, I did want to just for fun, really quickly let you see if you're watching or he and or hear, uh, if you're listening, an Aeolian harp. Because what he's saying is that when this, when the moon awakens all these birds, they burst forth a, a song like uh, as if some sudden gale had swept at once a hundred airy harps. And remember, the, the Aeolian harp is, it kind of represents the idea that nature has a voice if we just learn how to listen. So let me make sure this is on for you guys to see. Okay. And then we'll wrap up uh, a little bit after this. So if you're watching, here's an alien harp. It's on the South coast of Ireland. And if you're not just kind of listen, I'll just only play it for a couple seconds, 30 seconds or so. So that sound is purely from the sound, the, you know, the, the wind going through it. And so, you know, you can kind of get a sense where it's not obviously a song like, you know, designed by the mind of man, but there is a still a kind of a natural cadence to it based on, and you get that with the, the sound of the, um, the ocean wave, right? Like there is a kind of cadence that comes with it. That's just natural. Because it, it just does what it does, but it never stop. It it does by natural forces, so it kind of stays consistent. Okay, um, last stanza. Farewell, O warbler, till tomorrow eve, and you, my friends, farewell. A short farewell. We have been loitering long and pleasantly, and now for our dear homes. That strain again, which might be separation, or it might be just kind of like. Coleridge was not happy at home in general. I don't think he loved his wife very much. Full fain it would delay me, my dear babe. And he's talking about his son. 
here, my dear babe, who, capable of no articulate sound, so even if you didn't know his biography, you, you can know he's talking about a baby here, because he says, capable of no articulate sound, mars all things with his imitative lisp. So he, this baby is, imitates everything around it, and it does it poorly. It's a horrible job. That's not what a dog sounds like, baby. Jeez. <laughs> How he would pace his hand, place his hand beside his ear, his little hand, the small forefinger up, and bid us listen. And I deem it wise to make him nature's playmate. He knows well the evening star, the moon. And once, when he awoke in most distressful mood, some inward pain had made up that strange thing, an infant's dream. I hurried with him to our orchard plot, and he beheld the moon, and hushed at once, suspends his sobs. So he saw the moon, he was crying, he saw the moon, he stopped sobbing, and he laughs, most silently, while his eyes, his fair eyes, that swam with undropped tears, did glitter in the yellow moonbeam. Well, it is a father's tale. But if that heaven should give me life, his childhood shall grow up familiar with these songs, that, that with the night he may associate joy. Once more, farewell, sweet nightingale. Once more, my friends, farewell. So I, I hope that you enjoyed that. Um, if you go to troubadourmag.com, I'll have a post up for this one, and I will include... Um, the terms and some of the quotes that I used in this uh, in this discussion, and uh, you know, hopefully, you can get a lot out of it. We'll do some more Coleridge in the future. I'm going. To, I'm continuing to go through lyrical ballads with you. Um, who knows? Maybe we'll go through all the 1798 lyrical ballads at some point. Why not? Um, maybe not. We'll see what happens. But at this point, it seems like you guys are enjoying this. So thank you. And if you like this, I hope that you share it around and let people know. Um, you know, the, about these great poems and, you know, Troubadour podcast. So thank you very much. And I will see you next time.